saving summer. Step two is coming up, and so far, the data that we have is supporting that we can go there. New COVID modeling means relaxed restrictions are on the horizon. Lingering concerns in long-term care. We don't even know on a site-by-site basis what the rate of vaccination uptake is among staff. Grieving families lead the way in a push to make workers get the shots. And attack from above. I got too close to their nest that I didn't know was there. How protective crows are making life difficult for pedestrians. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. The latest modeling data from Dr. Bonnie Henry reinforces just how powerful vaccination has been in stopping the spread of COVID-19. The new numbers show BC isn't just bending the curve, we're crushing it. It's almost guaranteed BC takes another step toward normal next week. And as Richard Zussman reports, we could even get to COVID zero by September. British Columbia getting ready to move forward one step at a time. Step two is coming up, and so far, the data that we have is supporting that we can go there. When the province's restart plan was unveiled May 25th, there were 329 COVID cases a day. Now it's 161. Hospitalizations down 301 to 176. Those in ICU down from 93 to 49. And vaccination up from 64.6% first dose for adults to 74.9%. The vaccines that we have in here in Canada are safe and effective. One of the major side effects that they have is hope, optimism, and a brighter future ahead. And if contacts remain at 70% and normal and vaccine uptake remains high, follow the red line. COVID could nearly be totally gone from BC by September. But if people go up to 80% of contacts, the virus will linger with that purple line. We are likely to see more cases arise, but they're not going to be uh, widely transmitted in our communities the way that we have seen before. Movie theaters are so confident they already have signs declaring they will open on Tuesday. Step two also includes playdates for kids, outdoor gatherings of up to 50 people, and an encouragement to travel across British Columbia. We're bridging still from a time of orders and restrictions to a time when we can safely spend time with others once again. The province also on track to move to step three by July 1st, but those goals are vague. It is incumbent on this government to provide clarity. British Columbians, for the most part, want to do the right thing. They just need to know the specifics. We're looking at in terms of the data, and it is a little bit vague. We say cases are low. And and that recognizes that as we get down um, to low numbers of cases, um, that even a small increase, uh, a small cluster of cases, will mean the numbers go up a little bit. But that's okay. We're not in a place where we can fully take away all of the things that we've been doing to prevent transmission. But we're getting towards that. The numbers backing up hope that July 1st will mean an end to the state of emergency, no limits on indoor social gatherings, and dropping the requirement to wear masks in indoor public spaces. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. The trends look good. Let's take a look at our new numbers. We have 153 new cases, bringing BC's total to just shy of 146,000, with 1,910 of those cases active. 
176 people are in hospital, 49 of them in the ICU, and we've had four more deaths, including one person in their 50s. Keith Baldry joins us now with more on the one slight caveat, Keith, that could slow our progress, and that's variants of concern, which you're keeping your eye on. Yes, indeed. So there's all sorts of variants out there, but there's only four variants of concern. Interesting slide today shows the growth and the change, the shift in pattern of the variants of concern. Take a look at this. The, the green there, that's the original variant that came in from South Africa. Uh, now, these are all now given Greek names. That's the uh, beta variant. The purple uh, color there, that's the dominant one for months. That was the one originally in the UK, now called the alpha variant. Then at the bottom of there, you start to see a surge in the P1 or now called the Gamma variant, originally in out of Brazil. And then that little sliver of blue there, that's a relatively new arrival of the Delta variant. That's originally discovered in India. That's the variant that's causing so much trouble in places like the United Kingdom to the point of them reconsidering some of the reopening plans. Dr. Bonnie Henry today saying basically all the cases being discovered now are variants of concern and they're doing massive testing of them to track them in the months ahead to ensure they don't get out of control. As we get smaller and smaller case numbers and as we start to open up more and people are traveling more, it is more and more important that we know exactly which strains of which virus are circulating where. And to that end, we've now moved, as of a couple of weeks ago, to doing a whole genome sequencing on 100% of our cases in British Columbia. So what we know exactly which strains are infecting people across the province. Obviously keeping a close eye on those areas of concern in the weeks ahead, but no reason, I think, for panic. I think the signs continue to look good. We're headed for a reopening on, July on June 15th, July 1st, and September 7th as well. Looking forward to it. All right, thanks very much, Keith. Well, as we know, the pandemic has been particularly devastating for BC care homes, which has some asking why BC has not changed the rules to require staff to be vaccinated and visitors to be tested. As John Hua reports, critics point out other provinces have taken action to protect vulnerable seniors. Clear guidelines have been cooked up for restaurant restarts. A plan is in place to limit travel throughout the province. But families that were left devastated by the pandemic's deadly toll on long-term care homes believe it's already been forgotten. People should have processes in place now and have learned from, from so many mistakes. Unlike other provinces such as Ontario and Quebec, British Columbia hasn't adopted measures like mandatory staff vaccinations to prevent further long-term care outbreaks as the outside world starts to reopen. There's no mandatory vaccination policy in place, and in fact, no mandatory notification on whether or not uh, staff members have been vaccinated. In other provinces, long-term care staff who refuse to be fully vaccinated must undergo regular rapid testing, take an education course on the risk, face being reassigned to other duties, or placed on leave without pay. It absolutely is heartbreaking to have someone lose a loved one in care when things could have been done to prevent that from happening. Even now, there are five ongoing outbreaks in long-term care and assisted living, resulting in the loss of 12 loved ones in BC. While some might consider it late, it sounds like the province is looking into doing more. We will be looking at um, how do we ensure that everybody in these most highly vulnerable settings are immunized uh, with two doses as much as possible. Rapid COVID-19 testing, not just for staff, but visitors as well. 
has also long been proposed as an added layer of protection. We have a couple of million of these tests sitting in boxes, uh, so we could certainly implement that in a hurry. Families who've already lost loved ones say letting our guard down allowed COVID-19 to decimate long-term care homes. I would hope that they can find progress faster, but it's just, it's frustrating. The current lack of action leaving them worried about what we learned from our mistakes. John Hua, Global News. The pandemic has been both a blessing and a curse for bike shops. Overwhelmed by demand for two-wheeled transportation, they're selling out of inventory. But now, as Paul Johnson reports, the global supply chain can't keep up and parts are becoming scarce too. Summer's coming, so how about a new bike? Along with a lesson in supply and demand. It was bad last year, it's worse this year. Paul Dragon, a Vancouver's reckless bike stores, has been in the business for decades. He's never seen a situation like this, where the world's producers of new bikes are currently setting an upper limit on what retailers can order. Normally when we buy bikes, if we order $20,000 worth of bikes, the guy's happy. And if I say I'm going to order $30,000, he's happier. Now they're saying to us, your budget, your allocation is X amount. You cannot buy more than that. What's happened with commodities like lumber and items like boats has also hit bicycles, both conventional bikes and those fancy e-bikes you see everywhere. The pandemic forced enough factories offline for long enough to trigger a global shortage, just as people everywhere rediscovered the simple joy of cycling and had a few extra bucks because of canceled vacations, restaurant meals, and commuting costs. People have money, people have time, people want to do something. And if your plan is to try and avoid the crunch by putting an old bike back on the road, bad news is that parts are equally scarce. New chains, inner tubes, derailleurs are all being snapped up by factories trying to fill their orders. So if your vision of trying to make up for lost months in the gym includes riding a new bike, expect to pay more this summer and even have to put a deposit down. And consider Dragon's advice, rare from any retailer, if you've got a working bike, think about making do for a few more months. In Vancouver, Paul Johnson, Global News. Protective parents watching out for the young ones. We're talking about crows dive-bombing people all over Vancouver and the website that tracks the attacks so that you can protect yourself. That's next on the NewsHour. Throwing caution to the wind, Jay Durant introduces us to the Greyhounds, a group of track athletes proving their sport has no age limit. Coming up on the NewsHour. And an Indigenous artist putting a special spin on an animated series she's waited her whole lifetime to see. Right now, though, it is that time of year when going for a walk or a jog exposes you to an attack from above. Jordan Armstrong tells us why crows are dive-bombing pedestrians and what's the worst thing to do if it happens to you. It's that time of year... Time when some of us feel like we're living a scene from the Hitchcock film, The Birds. Okay, we're being dramatic, but crow attacks like these in Vancouver's West End 
can be scary. They started coming at my hair. And I was really confused because I'm like, why am I being attacked by crows? We found her at Cooper's Park in Yaletown, which according to the online database Crow Tracks, is a hot zone for aerial assaults. On this day, the birds were on their best behavior for our camera. Over in Kitsilano. I was attacked probably about six or seven times in our yard. So I started carrying an umbrella to and from the car. <laughs> Another Vancouverite says she negotiates with the crows and believes it works. I just talk to them like I would to a little kid or a bad dog. Now we're not going to have any of that, are we? So what's going on? The crows are just being good parents. I think it can happen anytime because the young can be out uh, with their parents out of the nest. This is the nesting season. The young are just uh, coming out of the nest now. Nesting season runs a few more weeks, so expect to see more citizen reports on crow tracks like dive-bombed three times, even after I ran across the street and kept running, and swooped down and robbed the zoot out of my hand. To be fair, I smoked way too much anyways. Wear a hat, uh, keep your head down, and perhaps uh, if it's getting pretty desperate, then perhaps use an umbrella. Experts say the worst thing you can do is flail your arms and be aggressive. The crows will see that as a threat. They can also remember your face for more than a decade. Well, our experiment is in year 15 now, and they still recognize the person that was dangerous. And even warn other crows when you pass by. So I've got a murder coming after me is what you're saying. Maybe. Oh no, I guess I better watch out. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. Up next, a disturbing discovery in wine country. Another killing in a quiet Naramata neighborhood. And coming up in Consumer Matters, crypto romance scams nobody loves. Police in the South Okanagan are investigating a homicide they believe is linked to a double killing last month. Yesterday afternoon, the body of a woman was found inside a home in the 3900 block of 3rd Street in Naramata. Police say officers attended the residence seeking follow-up information in relation to the killing of Kamloops brothers Eric and Carlos Fryer, who were found dead May 10th in a remote location near Naramata. I just really want to reinforce the message that this is believed to be a targeted incident and related to the drug trade. So residents can be rest assured that people unrelated to it, um, you know, that are investigating, that's, that is our investigative theory and that we really want to assure you that we are doing everything that we can, additional resources brought in, in order to ensure that uh, the people that are responsible are identified. A former Kelowna RCMP officer is awaiting his sentence after pleading guilty to breach of trust involving several women he pursued sexually. But some of the victims say their voices aren't being heard by the justice system, and they're sharing their frustration with Global's Jules Knox. In one word, my reaction is outrage. Brian Burkett started sexting Kate in 2016 after she'd been domestically assaulted by a partner and he responded as an RCMP officer. But she wasn't the Mounties' only victim. My story's so different from the other women. Their stories are so different from mine. Burkett was originally facing seven counts of breach of trust for pursuing inappropriate sexual relationships with seven different women. But when he pleaded guilty in court earlier this month, the stories of seven women were lumped into one breach of trust charge. It's just saying um, women are all the same. Women 
don't need mm-hmm. the individual voices. Why don't we just, you know, protect him because he's been through so much. I think this is disgusting and unacceptable. And I, I am absolutely disgusted with our system. While the Crown told the judge that the victims were all given the opportunity to make a victim impact statement, at least one woman says she wasn't asked for one. And Kate was outraged to learn that the Crown told the judge to read her statement silently and it wasn't heard aloud in a court of law. When he pleads guilty for them to not allow my voice to be heard is like the biggest slap in the face that anybody can do to any victim, period. This doesn't feel like a Canadian story of justice. This feels like friendly waters for a criminal. Angela Marie McDougall works with victims. She believes Burkett should have had to face each of the seven breach of trust charges and is troubled by the way the victim impact statements were handled. We're talking about power-based crimes where the power has been taken away from the victim uh, by the by the victim impact statement being read in court, being heard by everybody, is one of the vital ways that a victim can reclaim her power. The former Mountie has yet to be sentenced. The Crown is asking for six months to a year in prison. The defense wants a conditional sentence to be served in the community. That's a slap on our wrist. That- you know, there's seven of us. He pled guilty. So if you get six months, that's less than a month per woman. Burkett is expected to learn his fate on July 27th. Jules Knox, Global News, Kelowna. Be wary of finding romance online. Vancouver police are warning the public after hearing from victims who've lost, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Consumer Matters reporter Andrea joins us with more on cryptocurrency romance scams, how they work, and how to protect yourself. And Thanks, Sophie. The romance scam has been around for some time, but now it's become more sophisticated with the involvement of cryptocurrency. Vancouver police say they continue to hear from victims on a weekly basis. They say the pandemic has been a huge reason for the increase, given that more people are spending more time at home. Now, this type of crypto scam typically starts on dating apps and social media sites where the victim is normally approached and befriended by a stranger. The stranger, who in reality is a fraudster, gains the trust of the victim and enters into a romantic relationship. The fraudster then lures the victim into a cryptocurrency scheme, usually a cryptocurrency investment. The victim is an asked to provide personal information and eventually makes a transaction not realizing they are depositing the funds into a fake account controlled by the fraudster. By the time the victim realizes it's a scam, it's too late. Most of the time, by the time they realize that they've been duped, the scammers are gone. Whatever platform they were using online has been taken down. The money or the cryptocurrency has been passed through various people in an organized crime network. And the ability that the police have to recover the money is very small. We don't enter into investments or, or business agreements with people you don't know. And don't take your investment advice from social media platforms like TikTok or Facebook or, or Twitter. The Federal Trade Commission reports about 20% of the money people lost through the romance scam since October of 2020 was sent in cryptocurrency, and many victims thought they were investing. Cryptocurrency is designed to be anonymous and unregulated, which, as mentioned, makes it very hard to recover. And if you have a consumer issue for me, there's my email address at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. All right, thanks for that, Anne. The Squamish Nation says it wants protection for its trees, too. 
there's uh, cut blocks with some of the last remaining old growth within the territory. Why it could take a while to achieve a moratorium on logging like we saw on Vancouver Island. And diving right in to protect one of the most delicate creatures on the West Coast. Thank you. Good evening. Traffic has fully recovered over here at the Queensboro Bridge after clearing an earlier stall southbound on the approach. Want to be the ultimate content creator? Talk with expert photographers and filmmakers at Henry's Vancouver about the best-selling gear for streaming, podcasting, and creating content. Visit Henry's Vancouver today. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Queensboro Bridge. A court appearance today for a 20-year-old Ontario man accused of a planned and premeditated attack against a family because they were Muslim. Global's Catherine McDonald was there and has more disturbing details about the suspect's troubled upbringing. Looking no more than his 20 years of age, a scrawny Nathaniel Veltman appeared from Essex Middlesex Correctional Centre wearing an orange prison-issued outfit and a mask for a brief virtual court appearance Thursday morning. Nate Feltman, as he called himself, showed no emotion, shocking given the enormity of the charges he's facing. Four counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder after police say the London man deliberately ran down a family of five, killing a 15-year-old girl, her parents and grandmother, and leaving a nine-year-old boy orphaned, allegedly targeted because of their Muslim faith. And a picture of how Veltman became increasingly difficult and argumentative has emerged from his parents' divorce documents filed in 2016, in which he blames his mother for his father's situation. In it, his mother stipulates that she wants the children homeschooled until the completion of grade 8. Nathaniel, her eldest child, who is a twin, disagreed with homeschooling his siblings. Matters have become so stressful with the applicant that at times she has to lock herself in her bedroom. His father writes, Nathaniel's anger with his mother is primarily due to her attempt to prevent Nathaniel from having any contact with his dad. As a result of that hostility, Nathaniel has retained his own lawyer and voluntarily removed himself from her parental control and is living with friends. At the time, he was just 16. In the settlement, it states Nate will not be unsupervised with any of the younger children. There were four. The father must also ensure that Nate does not use his phone in any inappropriate ways, while the parents are also ordered to use their best efforts to encourage Nate to pursue therapy. Global News reached out to Veltman's father, who issued this statement. It was with utmost shock and horror that I came to hear of the unspeakable crime committed last weekend. There are no words adequate to properly express my deep sorrow for the victims of this senseless act. As this investigation is ongoing, no further comments will be made. The defense suggested Veltman could return to court a week from today, but the Crown said it would prefer that he come back next Monday. Terror charges were not laid today, something that was perhaps expected that could happen on Monday. Catherine McDonald, Global News. The Tall Ten Nation and the B.C. government have struck a historic deal on land use decision making. The Tall Ten's traditional territories in northwestern B.C., have become such a hotspot for mineral exploration, including jade, it's become known as the Golden Triangle. Under the terms of the deal, the nation and the province will work together to develop a land use plan and a new permit process for exploration and mining. We're working with a government that uh, recognizes that Indigenous people 
across this province and across this country don't just deserve equality as individuals, but there's more and more of a recognition that we also deserve equality as nations. The B.C. government is also committing $20 million to support the process. It has been less than a week since three First Nations on Vancouver Island had old-growth logging deferred on their territories. Now a fourth Indigenous nation has joined the call for an immediate moratorium for such logging on its ancestral lands. Ted Chernecki reports. There are giants living among us. Just 150 kilometres from Metro Vancouver stand towering old-growth trees that have been there for hundreds of years. Technically, an old-growth tree is defined as being at least 250 years old, but some of the ones on Squamish Nation traditional territory date way back. 300 or 500 to 1,000 to 1,200 years old uh, that stretch back to a time hundreds of years before Canada ever existed, but also we're standing uh, in, in parts of uh, this our territory when my ancestors uh, lived in our homelands many th- hundreds of years ago. For this reason, these trees mean much more to Squamish First Nation than just spectacular sites, and it warrants a two-year moratorium on all old-growth logging. A map's been created where the stars indicate old-growth areas that are at risk of logging in the next five years. For Squamish First Nation, it didn't seem to matter that the Premier and Forest Minister just promised all future decisions on logging must include Indigenous people. We felt the Squamish Nation needed to come out and state uh, very strongly, uh, publicly, uh, to the Premier and to the province, um, what Squamish Nation's position is, because we haven't seen the rhetoric from the political leadership match what happens on the ground when we're engaging with the ministry and trying to advocate for our rights to be protected within this conversation. But simply announcing a deferral isn't going to happen either, because there are many players involved in any potential logging operation. We need to ensure we're taking into consideration the, you know, the thousands of workers in this province and, and how it affects them, as well as companies, as well as forest-dependent communities. But, you know, the critical, the number one recommendation is the thing that we are doing, the number one thing we're doing is those engagements with Indigenous nations. The minister points out that recent deferrals announced on Vancouver Island actually took months to make happen. Ted Chernaki, Global News. Yet another scathing report into the death of a child in government care. And a warning, the story contains some disturbing content and it may be triggering for some. The child, an indigenous teenage girl, died of a drug overdose on her 17th birthday. Her story, unfortunately, repeats the past of both her mother and grandmother. Nitu Garcha reports. I just ask that you put your hands around everyone, give them strength, especially to the family of Sky. It's a prayer for the parents of one of the latest victims of a system designed to increase the odds of Indigenous children dying while in government care, as described by a friend of the mother whose daughter is now deceased. She loved her children. She loved Skye. Um, And I believe that if the ministry had made as much effort to support Skye and Marty to have a relationship as they did to keep them apart, uh, both Skye and Marty would be alive today. Less than a year after her mother's passing, Skye died of an unintentional overdose on her 17th birthday. Over 12 years, Skye was moved 15 times, lived in eight foster homes, attended as many schools, and had 18 different social workers while in child welfare, which many are calling a modern-day residential school system. On the surface, these might seem to be unrelated stories, 
the recent heart-wrenching discovery in Kamloops, and the tragic death of Skye. But in fact, they're different chapters of the same continuing saga. To the left is Skye's grandmother, Linda, whose daughter Marnie was taken from her in 1967, shortly after she was born. Marnie was separated from her then five-year-old daughter, Skye, in 2006. She had an older daughter, Olivia, who was born two years earlier, two years older than Skye. The report says the Ministry of Children and Family Development focused on finding Skye an adoptive home instead of with family. We remain steadfast in our goal of keeping Indigenous children and youth out of care, safely with their families and connected to their culture and communities. But with Indigenous children 18 times more likely to be separated from their parents, it's going to take more than delayed government action. This is uh, absolutely a function of racism, discrimination, efforts to assimilate Indigenous children. I hope that that people will read this report and demand change. Neetu Garcha, Global News, Vancouver. And we want to let you know there is help for First Nations and Indigenous people who are struggling. The QS Crisis Line Society is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, toll-free from anywhere in B.C. That number is 1-800-588-8717. There is also help and information available at the HealthLink B.C. website. Coming up, a young animator gets a big break. It's definitely one of my dream opportunities. The Emily Carr art student adding authenticity to Molly of Denali. But first, the Greyhounds track and field team outrunning old age. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. All right, we have some breaking news to tell you about now. Uh, these are fire crews tackling a two-alarm fire in downtown Vancouver right now. It looks like they're doing a good job knocking it down. It's burning in a high-rise apartment at Comox and Thurlow, pretty close to St. Paul's Hospital. It's burning about halfway up the building, as you can see. No details on how it started or if anyone has been injured, but we'll bring you more information as soon as it becomes available to us. All right, a solitary swimmer is braving the cold to raise awareness about BC's rarest animals. Jessie Horowitz circumnavigating Anvil Island in Howe Sound under her own power to celebrate and help protect the glass sponge reefs nearly 100 meters below her. The glass sponge reefs are considered one of the great wonders in Canada's oceans. Fragile collection of creatures had been thought to have been extinct for millions of years before being rediscovered in great numbers off the B.C. coast. Our goal is to promote low-impact um, recreational activity on the water where we can see all the beauty without destroying anything. But I think in a couple generations, humans are going to understand that these things are just an absolute treasure in BC waters. They're, they're an international treasure. Canada holds this treasure in its hand. And the Canadian government has to realize that it's going to take a lot more than they're doing now to protect these. The Marine Life Sanctuary Society says there's still a lot to discover about glass sponges and the role they play in our marine ecosystem. 
All right, let's bring in uh, meteorologist Christy Gordon for a look at our weather forecast. And uh, there was uh, another water spout sighting, Christy. Very rare for us to have not only a number of water spouts yesterday, but then the following day get a number of them again. And I'm going to explain to you how rare. But first, I just want to talk about yesterday's tornadoes, pardon me, water spouts. They're tornadoes over the water, pretty much the same thing. They're the exact same sort of um, made up technically. So we had three concurrent water spouts yesterday at 540. Uh, 5.45 a.m. Preliminary rating officially from Environment Canada is that they were EFO, which is low on the scale, but considering we rarely get them here across the south coast, that is quite exceptional. And then today, almost in the exact same spot, a number of water spouts spotted. Now, you can see one in this image, but a couple of funnel clouds as well. And then this next image, which is a bit hazy, there was a lot more rain this morning. You can see two water spouts. And these have yet to be confirmed by Environment Canada, but the, if they are, this is an incredibly rare event. Just just to give you a quick update on where these occurred, it was just off the coast of Powell River between Harwood Island and Texada Island. That's why it was also viewed yesterday from Comox. A number of people viewed those exact same ones. Uh, quick look back at tornadoes across the south coast. Again, very rare event. And here's a look. The last one occurred, if you may have remembered, in Victoria in May 21st on 2020. And then the last one beyond that was in Mission. So again, this is very, very rare. We tend to only get across all of BC about 6.5 water spouts per year so that is quite quite exceptional across southern BC tomorrow we will see cloud cover but mostly dry but the south coast are expecting a few showers it's certainly not going to be a soaker but cloud and showers cooler conditions will warm up over the weekend but we still have showers in the forecast tonight central windows weather windows showing those very dark clouds we saw all across the lower mainland today and you likely felt the downpour of rain as it rolled through isolated but still heavy I stayed inside. <laughs> Safer. Thanks, Christy. Best way to handle it. All right. As the saying goes, age is really just a state of mind. Although for one group of BC athletes, age can sometimes get in the way of competition. Jade Durant tells us about the Greyhounds, a team of masters track and field athletes who won't take anyone younger than 35 and actually have an 83-year-old in their ranks. Ah, you know, I think we're going to do a couple hundreds. Oh, okay. Two hundreds. It's another early morning at the track. And the Greyhounds can hardly wait to get going. Run. There's no slowing down later in life here. Records will fall. I have broken the 400 meter indoor record. Well, hurdles last year, the 80 meter hurdles a couple of times. But that's not the only list that's long. Injuries at this age can pile up. I've experienced uh, many Achilles tears, uh, hamstring pulls. The odd time you get sore back, shin splints. Some of these athletes have faced very serious problems. I had a order entrapment in my left leg, so I had to go get surgery. I was just uh, driving hard to the hoop and just tried to stop, and both my... Uh, Patellar tendons um, below my kneecaps um, snapped in half. But both Marvin and Brian have made comebacks, despite warnings that things might never be quite the same. You don't know me, Doc. Let's just do the surgery and we'll talk in a few months. <laughs> the support is uplifting. The energy infectious. Nice. You get it from, from the rest of the members. Everybody's having a good time. You're running. It's, it's exhilarating.
The club is hoping to host a couple of meets in August. All this work has to lead somewhere. You train and you train and you train, but when you compete, that's actually the report card that you uh, get. You get to see how you actually compare to other people. And records will fall. They have before, and they will again. They're within reach, and no doubt we will get those, and uh, it's only a matter of time. Jay Durant, Global News. Good job, all of them. If you know someone who has a great story to tell or something unique to BC, just email your ideas to jay at thisisbc@globalnews.ca. Hope I'm still going like that when I get a little bit later on in life. A little bit later <laughs> on in life. I wasn't going to say older. I don't want to <laughs> say older. But. Oh, if only our producer, Marsha Gabriel, had a microphone. <laughs> I'm glad she doesn't. <laughs> I, 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 I think it's great, all that, all those athletes out there. But I have to say, I've never seen a couch potato pull a hamstring. Not once. Not <laughs> or once. shattered patellar tendon. No, there. nothing like that. Uh, there is a new Maple Ridge baseball star to cheer for. Out to left. O'Neill back. Larry Walker, of course, is Maple Ridge Hall of Famer, and so is Tyler O'Neill, who's having a breakout season defense. Also tonight, a dream opportunity for a young woman from Whitehorse, adding important perspective to an award-winning animated series. All right, it feels like we're getting close to the goal line, to use a football euphemism for the pandemic here and let's hope for real the lions can get close to the goal line soon well it looks like it the uh, cfl board of governors is going to meet next week they'll be discussing a number of things about the 2021 season one is not playing any exhibition games hopefully a 14 game regular season they might release the schedule next monday you never know with uh, games starting in early august that would mean training camps would probably start second week of july the lions are still planning to train in kamloops providing of course everything is allowed by the health authorities hey remember when um, there was all that talk in the off season well i guess it's still the off season about seahawks quarterback russell wilson being unhappy to the point where he might want seattle to trade him to maybe Dallas or New Orleans or Las Vegas or Miami? Well, he obviously never got traded. And today he said all of those stories were not accurate. He loves being a Seahawk. That's just not true. You know, I didn't request a trade, you know. So I think everything kind of started from there. Uh, and then obviously tons of teams were calling. And I think that the reality was is that I didn't really want to go anywhere else. I wanted to play in Seattle. But if I had to go somewhere, these are the teams I would go to consider you know, I, I had a, a great conversation with Coach Carroll. I'm excited where we are. I, Coach Carroll and I's relationship couldn't be stronger on it. Um, you know, my focus is um, to win, and, and winning is everything to me. Colorado must win in Vegas to stay alive and force a Game 7. There's Mark Stone. Let's see what happens here. Abbotsford's Devin Tays scores the first goal. What a start and it was uh, Nathan McKinnon who set him up. McKinnon is a finalist for the Hart Trophy with uh, Austin Matthews and Connor McDavid. That's the league's MVP. Then a weird goal. Philip Grubauer doesn't know what's going on. Now the puck's in the back of the net. Nick Holden with the goal there. And William Carlson. 2-1 for the Golden Knights. Whoever wins this series plays Montreal in the Final Four. 
Larry Walker is the most famous baseball player from Maple Ridge. He's in baseball's Hall of Fame. That's how big he is. But there's another Maple Ridge player for a new generation, Tyler O'Neill, who is playing for the St. Louis Cardinals, which, incidentally, Larry Walker played for in his last season and a half. O'Neill is the full package. He makes great defensive plays, and he hits baseballs into the next county. The 0-1 pitch. O'Neill crushes one out to deep left field. How far? Mammoth shot. Tyler O'Neill. They don't give out style points for home runs, but if they did, Tyler O'Neill would be at the top of the heap. O'Neill has smashed 15 home runs this season. 12 of them have been 400 feet plus. He doesn't leave much doubt when the ball leaves the bat. O'Neill is a regular starter really for the first time in his four-year career. Last season, he did get a number of starts and his power numbers were good, but he hit just for a 173 average. This year, he's hitting an impressive 293, making more contact and starting to figure out major league pitchers. Left center, adios! I think the biggest thing for me is simplification. Um, understanding which numbers work for me. You know, there's so much, uh, so many metrics and so many, uh, so much different data that you can, uh, you know, use and talk about. Uh, so just really understanding, you know, how I'm getting attacked and, um, you know, just being able to utilize myself and uh, knowing, knowing uh, where I can do damage in the zone has, has helped me a lot this year. O'Neill is not built like your typical baseball player. He is a stocky powerhouse at 5'11", 200 pounds, and solid muscle. Not many can match Tyler O'Neill in the weight room. Really just who I am, how I am, it's my profile. You know, this is what got me to the position that I am, to the big leagues, to getting drafted. You know, I make sure that I stay on my, on my power exercises, get my fast twitch muscles activated, and it's been working for me. But O'Neill is a rare combination of muscle and speed. He won a gold glove last year thanks to some highlight reel catches, and it continues this year as he puts his body on the line every day. Out to left, O'Neal back, he got it! If O'Neal can keep up this pace, there's a very good chance he'll be chosen to play in the Major League All-Star game this July in Colorado. He turns 26 later this month, just getting into his prime and making the baseball world take notice that Tyler O'Neal is one to watch. Yeah, baseball's fun. <laughs> it's a fun sport when you're hitting the ball. So, um, you know, this emphasis for me is just to stay short, um, again, understand how I'm getting attacked and, um, you know, put some balls in play. Good things happen that way. BC has been fertile ground for good baseball players in the mm -hmm. majors. Great players coming out of here. All right. Thanks very much, Squire. Up next, how a children's animated TV show got some vital help from an Emily Carr student and not just in the art department. The push is on to produce more stories from Canada's Indigenous communities, and a young Aboriginal artist and Emily Carr student has added her perspective. Leah is very thankful for an internship at a production company that produces the award-winning animated series Molly of Denali, contributing on more than a creative level, too. Catherine Urquhart reports. We made it to the summit! The weather cleared. In the animated children's show Molly of Denali, a little Alaskan girl is the lead character. Ten-year-old Molly's adventures include her dog Suki and her family, who run the Denali Trading Post. 
It's a show any animator would love to work on, but especially one who is Indigenous and lives in Whitehorse. Um, Molly's a very like spunky, energetic kid. She's very outgoing, and I really like her character. She's pretty fun. 21-year-old Leah Fabre-Dimsdale is doing an online internship on the award-winning Atomic Cartoon Show after finishing her second year in Emily Carr's Bachelor of Media Arts program. Her job includes doing storyboarding, animation, and design. It's important to me since um, I am Indigenous and I haven't really seen much representation of people that look like me um, or have grown up with experiences like me. Getting the chance to work on Molly of Denali was an unexpected opportunity for Leah after a call went out for Indigenous interns facilitated by the non-profit organization MyTax. It's a fabulous success story. It's exactly the kind of thing that we like to see. Um, she was basically brought into this uh, project, the animation project, through the internship. Uh, it's led to a great result. Uh, it's been good for Leah. It's been good for the uh, company she was working with. Leah's internship on Molly of Denali ends this summer, and she'll return to Emily Carr. Hopeful she'll have more opportunities ahead to showcase Indigenous people. It's definitely one of my dream opportunities. I'm not sure exactly what I want my job to be yet, but it's definitely like working in an Indigenous-minded project. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. (laughs) Good for her. Looks like a good show. Sure does. All right, before we go, uh, last word on weather from Christy out on the deck. Thanks, Chris. Uh, So more cloud cover tomorrow, certainly. We have a slight chance of showers throughout the day, but not a soaker of a day. Uh, But certainly bring your rain jacket just in case. The weekend's still a bit iffy. I'm hoping for some dry weather, though, on Saturday afternoon. All right. Look, I don't want to have to vacuum the water off the Little League diamond again this weekend, so I really hope the showers hold off. You vacuum water? Well, we tried it. It allowed us to play. Don't use that vacuum on the carpets afterwards. The shop shop vac came in handy. (laughs) All All right. Thanks for watching, everybody. Have a good night. Night, all. Thanks, guys.